0: This is the EWN Podcast Network.
1: Welcome to Prime Spark, the podcast that brings you conversations that inspire, celebrate and empower women over 55. The second women's revolution is here and it is time for us to fuel a spark that will ignite your way forward, illuminate your path and reflect your gifts in the world. Now, here is your host for Prime Spark, Sarah Hart.
2: Hi, and welcome to Prime Spark. I'm Sarah Hart, and I'm so happy you're here. Prime Spark is designed for women over 55 to help us all have our happiest, most fulfilling, and successful lives now and in the future. The mission of Prime Spark is to change the way our society sees and treats older women. That's a big mission, which only means we all need to be involved and we need to get started now. And today I have the great pleasure of speaking with Jeanette Liardi, a woman whose work I greatly admire. Jeanette Liardi is a social gerontologist community educator, writer, editor, and public speaker, and aging wellness leader who has a passion for older adult empowerment and finds special personal fulfillment, helping boomers and older generations identify and share their wisdom with others. Her decade of experiences as the primary caregiver to both of her parents inspired her encore career goals of changing perceptions about the aging process and helping people appreciate elders' inherent dignity, wisdom, and unique value as mentors and catalysts for social change. She accomplishes this through her publications and successful presentations and classes in journaling, spiritual writing, memoir writing, brain fitness, health literacy, ageism, Intergenerational communication, creativity, and caregiver support to people of all ages. Jeanette's publishing experiences include positions at Newsweek, Life, People, Conde Nast Traveler, Sesame Street Magazines, and the Charlotte Observer. She has a master's degree with honors in English from Rutgers University and a graduate certificate in gerontology from the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. Welcome, Jeanette. I'm so happy you're here today. Oh, thank you so much, Sarah. It's a pleasure to be with you. So in getting started, let me just ask you, do you experience getting older? And if so, what is that experience? And if not, why do you think it is that you don't?
3: Well, I would say, of course, I experience getting older. I would be surprised if. There's anyone out there who doesn't experience getting older? Because we start getting older from the minute we're born, or even before then. So, I mean, we should all be experiencing getting older. But I, if I guess what uh, I would interpret your question to mean, getting up in years. And yes, I do experience getting up in years. Um, I I feel I have the combination of an awareness of my physical financial and social vulnerabilities as I get older, because in our society, it's our society does not support aging in well into our years as it should. So I experience that kind of awareness, but I also simultaneously experience an elation about getting older. I just turned 70 and that I've just been so excited about turning 70. I can't explain why, (laughs) but I just think I'm the I'm the best at a lot of things than I've ever been. And there are a lot of good things about getting older. Um, I feel I'm more able to handle stress and change better. Uh, I have more motivation to help others. So I think that there are some real positives about getting older. And that's what I'm about is showing, telling people what those positives are about.
2: I love that, Jeanette. I have asked so many women that question and I don't have it kept track, but I would guess 90, 95% say the same thing you said. That of course, I'm aware of it. You know, um, there's some physical things and that, 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 that. But I actually feel better than I've ever felt. I feel, you know, more able to do things and get out and be me and on and on and on and on. And so I think on, on the balance, most of us um, love it. Yeah, um, you know it's it's a it's a wild ride at this time in life.
3: <laughs> well, and that being said, though internally, I also simultaneously feel much like I did all my life. I mean, inside my head, my personality, I feel I'm the same person. Um, my passions and preferences have continued, have stayed pretty much the same. My spiritual values, pretty much, have stayed the same and have matured. Um, so. So what I've been on the inside, I feel, has just withstood the the test of time. So in some ways, I feel, yes, I'm changing. And in other ways, I feel changeless, that I've, I've always been the same person I am.
2: That's fascinating. I never really uh, thought of it that way before, but I do, too. Mm. I, um, and so when I, every once in a while, I mean, I am I, I love every birthday. I mm. bring, bring it on, you know. Um, Good for you. Um, and... Every once in a while, I would think, how did I get to be this old? <laughs> and I, and, but I think about um, I feel like I did when I was 20, 30. I mean, I, I don't for me, I don't feel any different. I just, right. there's a, you know, there's a meanness that I brought with me my whole life. Right. And I think that's the thing that w- that at least
3: when I was young, I never assumed that that would be the case. I always assumed that when people got old, they were very different people. They felt like they were very different people. So that's something that you can't really quite explain to people who are decades younger. They just have to experience it, that we are, in as I said, some ways changing and in other ways pretty much the same. And um, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with uh, psychologists. Uh, Becca Levy from Yale, her studies about positive feelings about aging. If you have a positive sense of aging, you can actually uh, increase your longevity on an average of seven and a half years, and you can um, help to uh, avoid the pitfalls of dementia uh, by about 50%. So there's some real science behind this U-curve of happiness where you get happier the older you get. And if we can have these positive views of aging, that's a
2: health benefit as well as, you know, a, a, an emotional benefit. Absolutely. I don't know how many people, since I've read that book, which is everybody should get the book. It's yes. breaking the age code. Yes. Um, you, you need to get that book. It is brilliant. And, and since I've read it and told people those statistics, they don't believe it. Ah. You know, I say, OK, go to the book because <laughs> she's a solid scientist. She's, you know, I'm not making this is not woo woo. I'm not making this up. You know, go read it. So that was really, Jeanette, you were talking about um, not, not knowing until you get to this age about what it's like. But you have done some really interesting writing about the importance of intergenerational communication. So can you talk about that a bit? Because I think that's so important you know uh, one of the things i wrestle
3: with and i'm i'm trying to figure out a way of writing about this i've i've written i keep a blog called ageful living and i've written blog posts about generations and i think i used to subscribe to this older sense of that generations are discrete groups of people the 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 more i learn and i'm still learning thank goodness we should all be still learning the more i learn the more i realize that talking about generations as generations may not be as valid as we once thought, that there are great variations within generations and that people, I'm a baby boomer and baby boomers can feel like they have other things in common with people decades younger than them or decades older. So when it comes to intergenerational communication, I think the first thing we need to do is kind of divest ourselves from the idea that generations are discreetly different, that, you know, a a millennial, a typical millennial is this and a typical Gen X is that, and a typical baby boomer. I don't think there are really any typicals anymore. I think we, and that can be a real positive way of communicating with people of different generations is realizing that we can be more alike than we think we're different from one another. I mean, in the workplace, they talk about how millennials feel certain ways, and baby boomers feel other ways. I don't think so. I think all people who want to have a good experience at work want to do a good job. They want to be recognized for doing a good job. They enjoy flexibility in their lifestyle. They want to have options offered to them. Um, they want to challenge and variety. I don't think those are generational differences. So the more I um, I, I think about intergenerational communication, the more I'm now siding with, we all basically talk the same language. We may couch it in different terms or make different assumptions of the other person, but we need to be breaking down those barriers. And once we break down those barriers of assumptions of what a boomer is like, or what a Gen X or a millennial is like, we can then start to communicate in much more fluid and meaningful ways. So. Yeah. I'm not sure
2: if I answered your question but that's yeah you did no I got about five questions I want to ask you I can't decide <laughs> what to ask first because one of the th- but let me this is what's on top of my mind it would be wonderful for you to write about intergenerational communication but call it something else and and so we can stop using intergenerational because once we say that Everybody thinks of gen- this generation, this generation, this right. generation, this generation. Right. So think of a new word, Jeanette, and start writing about something that doesn't include that word, but embodies everything you were just saying. Because mm-hmm. I think that um, one of the things that, 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 that determines how we think about things are, is language. Right, and if we can have a new word for what we're talking about, or just talk about it without having any words, uh, but it seems to me that that it's it's a whole continuum. It's not it's not little boxes of generations. It's a continuum. Um, so do well, it, I, do, well, it. Wanna, do it, please
3: do it. Well, I want to thank you for just
2: inspiring me because as you were
3: mentioning this, I was just making some notes. And what I was thinking of is when you said call it something else, I'm just thinking of calling it universal language, just like we have the concept of universal design. When you have universal design, if you have a doorknob that an older person can open, you may have you may have designed a doorknob that a woman or a man holding a young baby with one arm can also open or you know, so it, it's something that will fit all people of all ages. So thank you for giving me that idea. And I'll ponder that a bit. Oh,
2: good. Oh, good, good, good. And now another thing I was thinking about, and I don't know if you had this on LinkedIn or if somebody else did, but it really made an impression on me. It was a picture of little kids going to school on the hundred day or something. Oh, gosh. Oh, yeah. Oh, and yeah. I thought, Talk about the beginning of ageism. These kids were like six years old, uh, uh, oldest uh, at mid-six. They looked really young. And there they were dressed in old baggy clothes and walkers and canes. And I'm thinking, give me a break.
3: Yep, yep. Well, I've got news for you. Uh, ageism can be instilled in a child as young as three years old. That's when it starts. <sighs> so in preschool, Um, That's why it's so incredibly important for to have a lot of intergenerational activity between the very young and the very old. Um, I'll tell you two things. One is when we, there are some preschools that are uh, attached to retirement communities, and that could be a very positive thing, not only for the older people who want to still have relationships with very young kids, but they could be the role models. If a child has a, a really positive or realistic, let's say realistic, model of an older person at a very young age, those kids don't really grow up to be ageist or they have that role model. And if they experience ageism or hear somebody else make fun of old people, something in their minds comes of says, no, I don't, that doesn't sound right to me. I'm a social gerontologist, but I became one in my 50s. Um, I pivoted from being a writer and editor of educational materials for children, of all things, which I still do. So I have both ends of the aging spectrum in my, in my life. But, um, but I was a caregiver to both my parents, and that's what made me want to, the challenges I faced and they faced getting person-centered care made me decide after they were gone, if they had, after they passed away, I want to study about gerontology. I want to study about aging because we treat older adults very poorly in this society. Well, anyway, so I was in my 50s. I went back to graduate school, but I was sitting in a class, classes with 20-year-olds. Were in college studying to be or, or graduate school studying to be gerontologists and i've always been fascinating why are young people interested in this stuff because if you asked me back in my 20s i don't think i would have been that interested in it i wouldn't even it wouldn't have dawned on me so i ask whenever i encounter a young person who's into age studying aging i say what is it for you why are you so attracted invariably without ever any exception i must have asked this about 50 times no one has ever not said well, I have a really good relationship with my grandparent, or a very uh-huh. an elderly next door neighbor was really helpful to me, um, or I had a teacher, an old professor who I just really enjoyed. So they had those role models at an early age. So when we have this dress like a hundred year old day, we are really doing those kids a disservice. That that is almost a kind of uh, that that's kind of indoctrination that I would even consider it a kind of child abuse because we are disabusing them of the reality of what it's like to grow up. Um, Other schools in response to that, because they're getting a lot of kickback from us gerontologists saying, please stop this. They are doing things like um, put a hundred pennies in a jar. So each day you put a penny in a jar and at day 100, everyone looks at the jar full of pennies. And they say, this is what 100 looks like. So we're getting a more realistic view of aging as a cumulative experience because we do accumulate experience as we get older, that's the model you want. You don't want kids to think being bent over and I can't do this and I can't do that. And I look like this and I look like that. So I'm glad you brought that up because that is a practice that that hundred year old, just like a hundred year old person day really needs to stop. Yes,
2: absolutely. I think it's also the case, just what you were saying. I think it's also the case that we also don't want children and also all of us to just see pictures and examples of amazing older people. Right. Men who run, you know, 100 mile marathons and and women who are 80 and look like they're 30. I mean, that doesn't help either. I mean, that is sort of just uh, strengthening the youth culture in a way. I mean, it's just that. So this is what you want to try to be.
3: Right, and, I, and that's another good point that you're bringing up, and that is, you know, when I said before, instead of talking about positive role models, talk about realistic role models, which are positive. I mean, realistically, yes. Some of us can't do, I can't run a marathon. I'm, I'm 70, but you know what? I couldn't run one when I was 30 either. either. So, you know, so let's, let's really get real about what, what aging is about. Yeah, absolutely. But the ironic thing is we are being, we are living longer and we're also living healthier longer so that the 85 year old who's running the marathon seems like a real exception to the rule. But you know, in times to come, that's going to start being more the rule. Right. So we're going to have to start you know, just really adjusting. And the way we adjust is just let's just see an individual as an individual. Right. You're 80, you're 85 and you can run a marathon. I'm 80. I'm 70. I can't run a marathon, but I can do something else. Right. So let's concentrate on what people as individuals can and can't do and yes. meet those needs and allow them to share what they can do at yes. any
2: age. One of the things I was thinking about when we were talking about the, that horrible picture of kids um, looking like what they anyway, we won't yeah. talk about that because so <laughs> um, I think about I think it was Sky Bergman who talked about some of the children she talked to had no older people in their lives. Right. So as compared with those uh, students in your gerontology class, these children don't have any positive role models. Right. Um, right. And that's that's tough, because that's the way a lot of people are living their lives now in our in our incredibly mobile society.
3: And that's And that's another great point you bring up. Exactly. We we have we I guess since the Industrial Revolution, since the times of the 1850s, when jobs started shifting away from farmland into the cities and younger people left their farms and to get jobs in factories, we started ghettoizing age. We started separating the young and the old. And as you say, in today's very mobile society, there are kids who they may have grandparents, but their grandparents live 3000 miles away and they never get to see them. Or maybe they do see them now with, you know, Zoom and and all of that. But that's why, again, it's so important to find ways to get the get older adults and young people together uh, in, on a regular basis. Now, there are some programs like Experience Corps, AARP has the Experience Corps, where older adults volunteer to go into the schools and become like reading bod- buddies for kids in the elementary schools.
0: Yeah.
3: That's a good way, you know. So anytime we can actually mix the the age groups, um, and we should, in our minds, we should have the same attitude that we would have toward race or gender or any any other thing. If you're at a meeting, let's say a meeting that has nothing to do with age, and you look around the room and you see there are no old people in the room, you know, you should say to yourself, I should say to myself, how come there are no old people here? Or young people, if there are no young people. Just like if you're in a group that has nothing to do with gender and you see there aren't that many women there, or a group that has very few people of color. We should be sensitized to how come there aren't more people, more there is a more diversity in this experience, which calls for diversity. Now, I'm not saying that uh, teen clubs should invite 90 year olds into their clubs or, or retirement groups that go on hikes should have teenagers with them. There are affinity groups that have their own preferences, but when it's something that has nothing to do with the affinity, uh, uh, with, the, with the age, we should have it more diverse.
2: And I think, Jeanette, I don't know about this, but I'm gonna start paying attention. I think that we're probably at this point in time more sensitive to groups where there are no people of color or there are no right. women, for example, right. than right. we are of there are no older people here or there are no That's younger right. people. Here. That's right. That is not on our radar yet. Mm-hmm. yet.
3: Right. Exactly. And and ironically, I mean, the irony of all ironies is that ageism is the only ism we are all vulnerable to. Right. Not all of us are vulnerable to sexism or racism or homophobia or ableism, but we're all getting older. That's right. So I, we I said to- that to
2: somebody not very long ago when he really was taken aback. I said, you know, you're, you're going to experience ageism if things don't change. You, you, you don't have to worry about sexism. You don't have to worry because you're not going to be a woman. I mean, you could be, but at this point in your life, you're probably not going to be. Mm -hmm. Um, You don't have to worry about that. You don't have to worry about racism because you're a white male. You do have to think about ageism because, you know, and he was just sort of, oh, I actually thought about that. (laughs) Well, ironically,
3: the first time most white men experience ageism is in the workplace when they're either denied. uh, They're not hired or they're denied a promotion or they're asked to retire early. Or they're forced, they feel like they're being forced to retire early, or or people don't consult them during meetings, or they don't get tr- the same training as younger employees do. That's the first time they tend to experience it. But for us women, I mean, this whole idea of gendered ageism, we experience it with the first wrinkle or the first gray That's right. hair, That's- you know.
2: So talk about that, Jeanette. Talk about what are the because I am interested in gendered ageism. I mean, I don't like any ageism, but I am particularly interested in gendered ageism. I think you are too. Yeah. So talk about how does ageism impact women different from men? How differently from men, or is it the same, or how do you see it? You know,
3: ageism, which is prejudice against anyone because of their age. Um, that By that definition alone, it impacts people um, just in that basic way. But with, for us women, it impacts us differently because the social expectations of women have always been different than the social expectations for men. So we are judged more uh, immediately on our appearance. So appearance is a big factor in how uh, society sees our value. So we have to be you know, young and we have to be beautiful. And you know, how many of us qualify on you know, one or both of those um, factors? Uh, and whereas men uh, you know, don't have that pressure. Think of the typical, and it still goes on today. Think of the typical two person desk of a, of a news report. You have the older gentleman with the, maybe a little bit of gray hair over the ears, or, you know, the temples. And then you have the young 20 something female. Um, and that seems to be the the combination. And I think that picture says it all as to how ageism impacts women differently. Then the, because of that, our our lives are, um, are affected very seriously in terms of the fact that we still don't earn as much as men do. Yep. You know, we. I think now I don't know what the figure is. Eighty-eight cents on the dollar, maybe. So, what that what that means is, then our social security is going to be less because we haven't put in as much. And then most of us, many of us, I should say, it's getting less and less, which is a good thing. Are expected to stay home and take care of kids, be the primary caregivers. So many women have either left the job market or never entered the job market because um, they, you know, um, they were seen as the ones who were responsible for taking care of the kids. So that alone also affects how much we earn uh, through life. Women are still the majority of caregivers, family caregivers in our society, although more and more men are assuming that that role. So that intersectionality of gender and ageism, and then again, we talked to intersectionality, this intersectionality with ableism as well, how fit, how physically fit are we to be able to then perform the roles that society has demanded of us? And how, when it's where in society, are there people stepping up to share those roles with us? Most of the caregiving, the nurturing roles of society traditionally been relegated to women. Um, you know, nursing, teaching, um, you know, and all of that, social work. It has changed over the years, but it's still primarily, these are still primarily female dominated um, occupations. And, and because they were considered, women were considered less, uh, these occupations are considered less. So they're not paid as well. So you have, again, not only are women, you know, we're, we're earning less, but these but the types of jobs are also less salaried than if we were lawyers or doctors or anything else. So that's how uh, ageism affects women um, you know, more gendered ageism is is a real um, is a is a real determinant of how well we age in our later years.
2: You have recently, um, at least I think it's recently written about um, feeling invisible as you get older. Mm-hmm. Um, and I find that I found what you said fascinating. About I think that I think I'm remembering this correctly that um, we're not invisible to ourselves. Right. Um, would you talk about that? I find that fascinating. And especially in terms of the work that Becca is doing.
3: Mm. Well, um, what I meant by we're not invisible to ourselves is the fact that we are well aware that we are aging, that we are older people. And I'm saying we, as I said, I'm, I'm 70. So I'm talking about all, you know, people who, where, where we determine, That we are an old person as an individual for each of us because age, you know, age is fluid and the concept of old is fluid. By the way, at this point, I I should mention that there was a study done in 2015 uh, where uh, I think it was about 100 people from ages five to 75 were asked, How old is an old person? The five year olds on average, ready for this? The five year olds on average said 13. 13 (laughs) 13 year old was an old person. I love it. The 13-year-olds, on average, said a 30-year-old was old. A 30-year-old, on average, said 50. And then people above the age of 50 seem to want to add 15 years to whatever age they were. <laughs> you know, So the good news is that aging is a fluid concept. You know, In our minds, we all have different ideas of when is an old person. Um, but the bad news is no matter how old you are, somebody already thinks you're old. So... So deal with it, you know, in whatever way. Um, So I've just recently, I would say in the last couple of years, I started to actually accept calling myself an old person. I used to say I'm an older adult. Now I say I'm an old person and I'm okay with that. So my that invisibility about being old is I can't, I can't feel invisible to myself as an old person. I know I'm old. I know every morning when I wake up and my shoulders hurt me and my knees hurt and my eyesight is going and my hearing is not as great. So I know that stuff. But I also equally know I'm an old person because I know that my brain is far more superior to the brain I have when I was 30 years old. Yeah. and so i know the ways in which i've changed and that's what i mean about in terms of invisibility we older adults we know that we who we are we just have to get society to a to see us in the first place and then secondly to see us in the real ways we should be seen and not just the you know people in deterioration and decline right but the more complex people we are
2: i think it's uh fascinating that um I run into all the time. I run into people saying, why don't you use a word other than older women? And I say, because we are older. What would they prefer you to say? Um, Wiser. I say, I know a lot of older women who aren't particularly wise. (laughs) Right. And I know a lot of young women (laughs) who are really wise. Um, And I think part of the problem is. (laughs) is how we feel about the word. So we need to use it and own it and say, you know, this, I'm an older woman, look at me. Right, right. right? Well, it's interesting. if When
3: people want to equate older people with wisdom uh, as, as, as opposed to nobody else is wise except old people, um, that to me is the equivalent of the 85-year-old who's running the marathon, Yes, you
2: know, the yeah.
3: super-ager, the, the one who's really good at stuff. Now, again, yes. There are many old people who I would not consider to be wise. There are many young people who are wise but if if if, um, if, you're, if anyone is familiar with eric erickson 's work about the um, the stages of the of personality development in humans, what he talked about in the later stages of life is we get a kind of wisdom that 's different from a teenage wisdom or a twenty year old 's wisdom or a thirty year old 's wisdom we there's certain brain skills that we get as we grow older only because we're growing older. For example, my favorite thing to talk about is, um, you know, we have a left and a right hemisphere to our brain, but actually those hemispheres don't even touch, except in the middle part, there's a bridge of tissue called the corpus callosum. Now we're born with that little bridge of tissue that connects the two hemispheres, but that doesn't fully mature and get thicker and thicker and thicker until we're in our 50s. That's when it gets to be the thickest it is. And when it has fully matured, we tend to use our left and right hemispheres simultaneously better whenever we do a task. Young people's brains, when they're doing a task, of course they use both sides of their brain simultaneously, but but they tend to favor one side or another in doing a particular task. When we get older, our whole brain starts to work. Um, and as a... Uh, uh, Gene Cohen, um, famous gerontologist, geriatrician Gene Cohen said, it, it's as if we go from two-wheel drive to all-wheel drive. Our Wonderful. brains kick in. And so as we get older, we're able to perceive things from multiple perspectives. We empathize better. We can put ourselves in someone else's shoes because we've had more life experiences. And our brains have allowed us to have that ability to see problems in more, in more the the complexity. So things aren't as black and white as when we were younger. The answers don't come as quickly to us because we tend to want to deliberate and say, well, maybe it's not just quite the case. It's not as clear cut as you think it is. So that's that's how we we mature as we get older. And I think this those brain skills that we get as we get older are just so wonderful to anticipate. And that's what I would hope people of any age would start to anticipate getting older instead of dreading it. Can you imagine a little kid saying to a grandparent, Grandma, Grandpa, I can't wait to have a brain like yours when I grow up. That's the society
2: I'm working for. Yes, (laughs) I agree. I agree. So, Jeanette, of all the things you've done, you've done so many wonderful things. What are the three things you're proudest of? Well,
3: um, I think the thing I am proudest of in my life has been to be a long-term caregiver for both my parents. It was such a hard struggle. It was over a decade of really serious, intense struggle to get them the, the to get their needs met in the way they wanted their needs to be met. So, person-centered care as opposed to institutional care. You know what 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 providers thought we needed versus what my parents wanted and to, and what they felt they needed. So I remember even thinking during those times of, you know, years of sleep deprivation and years of very high stress, I thought to myself, if I never do anything else in this life, I've done this. And that to me has meant a lot to me. So I think being a caregiver has been one of the most uh, important things I've ever done and probably will ever do. Um, but also, I feel I'm proud of being a catalyst for other people. I love turn you know connecting people to other people or to other ideas or to books and, uh, or places or whatever. I love kind of lighting a spark and then stepping back and watching it happen. I've been a teacher, a community educator, a teacher all my life. And uh, my favorite moments in the classroom is when I literally disappear. When I'm, I've done, set the atmosphere, And I give them whatever the situation is and then they start working on it together. And I'm just stepping back and watching the sparks fly. That's a real joy in my life is to be a catalyst. I don't consider myself a teacher. I consider myself a facilitator. Um, And I guess the other thing I'm proudest of is being as creative as I've been. I've, I've, I've done lots of uh, different things um, on the creative, in a creative way. I've written poetry and and, uh, essays. I've, done paintings, I've made homemade gifts for people. I like to approach things creatively. Creativity to me is like the um, it's the battery of my life. It's the spark. The engine of my life is to be creative. So those would be my three things. Oh, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. <laughs> thank you.
2: thank you thank you. <laughs> so we've come to the end of our time today and um, I really want to thank all of you for being here. Please join us again. You can find out about Prime Spark podcasts on every major outlet. You can find out more about Prime Spark at www.primesparkwomen.com. Thank you so much to my guest, Janet Liardi. Where can people find you, Janet, if they're wanting, Jeanette, if, if they're wanting to find you?
3: Well, my website is JeanetteLiardi.com. So let me spell that jeanetteleard com. And on my website, you'll see um, my Age for Living blog under the Views and News tab. And I'm also on Twitter and I'm also on
2: LinkedIn. So just Google my name and you'll find me. That's, that is absolutely true, because before we came on, I Googled Jeanette's name and all sorts of things came up. So <laughs> it's J-E-A-N-E-T-T-E-L-E-A-R-D-I. And you can find her easily online. So thank you for being with us. Take care. Spread tolerance and love. Bye-bye.
1: Thank you for joining us on Prime Spark. With each episode, Sarah Hart brings you conversations that inspire, celebrate, and empower women over 55. If you would like to listen to or download other episodes about remarkable, experienced women, go to EWNpodcastNetwork.com. This podcast is also available at Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and most other major podcast sites. The second women's revolution is here, and we hope that you use the insights you've gained here to fuel the spark that will ignite your way forward, illuminate your path, and reflect your gifts in the world.
0: Have you ever asked yourself this question, why is it so hard to make a buck? (laughs) I know I have. Visit monetizemenow.com for details. Calling all speakers. eWomen Network has speaking engagements all over North America that must be filled. Are you a gifted messenger, author, expert, or successful entrepreneur that can help women entrepreneurs grow their businesses? Our mission is to help 1 million fulfilled women each achieve $1 million in annual revenue. If you're a speaker that can help women prosper, go to eWomenNetwork.com and sign up as a pro member of our Speakers Network. That's eWomenNetwork.com. Thanks for listening. This is the EWN Podcast Network.